0: Section Zero of The Diary of a Country Parson. This is a LibriVox recording. Read by John Greenman. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Diary of a Country Parson. The Reverend James Woodford. Seventeen fifty eight through seventeen eighty one. Edited by John Beresford. To Lord Fitzmaurice of Lee. In Memory of Many Good Talks of History, Books, and Men, in a Wiltshire Garden. Prefatory Note The diary of the Reverend James Woodford covers nearly every single day of the long stretch of years from seventeen fifty eight to eighteen o three. It is written in a handwriting as clear as print, almost as small and much more closely compressed and the manuscript runs through some sixty-eight booklets were the whole to be printed it would hardly be contained within less than a dozen stout volumes this remarkable manuscript is in private hands and its very existence is unknown even to the historical manuscripts commission who have cast their invaluable net over most of the private collections in this country my introduction to the diary has been made through my friend dr r e h woodford of ashwell hertz and great 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 nephew of the rev james woodford who now possesses the manuscript and who with much kindness has allowed me to read it through and take extracts from it note one dr woodford possesses numerous portraits records and ancestral relics of the woodford family i am indebted to him for much genealogical and other information i have dealt with the characteristics of the diarist the diary in the introduction but there is one overriding characteristic which i wish to emphasize at the outset the rev james woodford was not in his own day a great or even distinguished man whatever place he may take hereafter in the world of letters the passion for notoriety is wholly absent in the concluding words of a famous sonnet tranquillity is here to me this country voice till now as unknown and as mute as those immortalized in gray's elegy came with a wonderful and contrasting freshness one word as to my editorial method is necessary as i have explained if the diary were to be printed in its entirety a dozen stout volumes at least would be required one day i hope the whole diary will thus be presented to the world Meanwhile, my transcriptions are sufficiently full, frequent, and continuous to present the character of the diarist and his time in very intimate detail. In order to accomplish the essential project of a continuous narrative, I have linked up intervening periods of days, weeks, or months, where necessary, with a brief account of what was happening in those intervening periods and in the same way I have interspersed, though as rarely as possible, and more and more rarely as the diary proceeds, such explanations of the historical scene as seemed likely to assist the reader. Had the present edition of the diary been a day-to-day transcription, this method would for the most part have been unnecessary, and footnotes could have accomplished much, though by no means all, that an editor should supply." For instance, the diarist's career at Oxford would not be intelligible, without some account of the university system in the eighteenth century, a subject altogether beyond the scope of a footnote. See pages 158 through 162. In a work of this character I would rather not be distracted frequently by those compelling footnotes which one hates to read and fears to miss. If the reader dislikes me, he can see me coming, skip me, and proceed with the diary. Only he must be careful how he skips, because in so doing he may lose the thread of the narrative. I have adhered to the diarist's spelling, which, in accordance with eighteenth-century idiosyncrasy in this matter, was by no means consistent, especially in the case of proper names. This volume covers the period 1758 through 1781. If public appreciation and support are forthcoming, a second volume will carry on the narrative through the years which follow, years pregnant with war, with peace, with the French Revolution, with the wars, excursions, and alarums arising therefrom, rippling even to a country rectory, and with the vanishing stream of human things, as viewed by that lovable being, the Rev. James Woodford. John Beresford, Ashwell End, Baldock, Hertz, Christmas, 1923. Far from the madding crowd's ignoble strife, Their sober wishes never learned to stray. Along the cool, sequestered vale of life, They kept the noiseless tenor of their way. Elegy written in a country churchyard. Introduction in the first place it will be convenient if i give some account of the family of the reverend james woodford 1740 through 1803 especially as it will throw light on how the diary came to be written at all for james came of good literary stock his earliest known ancestor was one john woodford of scaldwell county northampton who was living in 1513 his great-great-grandfather robert woodford 1606 to 1654 steward of northampton kept a diary in the days before the civil war a diary parts of which have been published by the historical manuscripts commission note 1 hmc ninth report app 2 493 to 9 by way of gossip it may be said in passing that this particular diary opens an entry about a dispute which had arisen between Robert's wife and Robert's mother, as to the preservation and disposal of some sugar-plums. Robert, who was a grave man and of the Puritan persuasion, is much perturbed by this domestic difference, and enters a prayer in his diary that greater discretion may be vouchsafed to his wife in the future. Robert's son was the Reverend Samuel Woodford, D.D. and F.R.S., sixteen thirty six to seventeen o one, who wrote a paraphrase upon the Psalms of David, and numbered among his friends Bishops Ken and Stillingfleet, the poet Flatman, Cooper, the famous miniature painter, Gilbert White, grandfather of Gilbert White the naturalist, Dr. Spratt, historian of the Royal Society, Doctor Croon, founder of the Croonian Lectures, Bishop Morley, and, more famous still, Isaac Walton, to Walton Woodford dedicated two poems in 1670. Professor Saintsbury refers to him in one of those erudite and delightful notes to his Caroline poets, note one, volume three, page 306. There is a notice of this Woodford in the D.M.B. Woodford though much forgotten now must have been something more than an ordinary person as such he might have been as he was a st paul's boy and an oxford Wadham man a member of the inner temple an early f r s and later a canon of chichester and winchester but as such merely he would hardly have been in the preface to his paraphrases of the canticles the first and for a long time the only ingoing critic of milton's blank verse he does not take quite the right view of it but it is noteworthy that he should have taken any view of an intelligent character but for more interesting and important than all this is the fact that both he and his wife wrote diaries which I hope, in due course, to have an opportunity of editing. Note two. An extract from Samuel's diary appears in my Gossip of the Seventeenth and Eighteenth Centuries, pages fifty five, fifty six, R. Cobden Sanderson, nineteen twenty three. Samuel's son was Hayes woodford sixteen sixty four to seventeen twenty four rector of Epsom and canon of chichester and his son was samuel woodford sixteen ninety five to seventeen seventy one rector of ansford and vicar of castle carry in somerset whose second son was james our diarist of james's father we shall hear something in the diary he was a good country parson as his father was before him It pleases me to think that the diarist's ancestors were not only in the best sense respectable, but learned and good men, and that he clearly owed much to them. I confess to an old-fashioned belief in the profound importance of great-grandfathers, but not in any snobbish sense. Whether a man's great-grandfathers were dukes or dustmen is a matter of relatively minor interest. The interest consists in finding out what manner of men the great-grandfathers were, and to what extent their qualities have re-emerged in their descendants. I do not understand a certain modern school of thought which steadfastly ignores the past and, with childlike simplicity, believes it can instantly create something in art, literature, or politics which shall be completely new. It is an impossible theory for the plain fact is that we cannot escape from the past and progress consists but in a slow and gradual engrafting moreover a disregard of great-grandfathers is peculiarly inopportune in an age when science has demonstrated even in sweet peas the immense importance of pedigree but apart from these considerations the fact that the diarists ancestors were what they were is of interest from an historical standpoint in the famous third chapter of his history of england lord macaulay has given a brilliant but devastating description of the condition of the country clergy during the latter part of the seventeenth and earlier part of the eighteenth centuries although he concentrates on the latter part of the seventeenth century Macaulay, with a characteristic sweep of the pen, starts with the Reformation and runs into the reign of George II. The country rector was in general not regarded as, and indeed was not, a gentleman. Often it was only by toiling on his glebe, by feeding swine, and by loading dung carts that he could obtain daily bread. He was ill-informed and grossly prejudiced and he was a passionate supporter of the tories the great historian contrasts with the country clergy the eminent divines to be found at the universities at the great cathedrals or in the capital. he gives a list of the men who flourished there towards the end of the seventeenth century and an exceedingly imposing list it is not the least eminent name being that of bishop burnett Who is generally acknowledged by those who have studied his works and his life to have been a very great man a very excellent bishop and a very good whig it would be not only impertinent but idle to suggest that much that lord macaulay says of the country clergy is not true lecky while admitting that macaulay greatly understated the number of men of good family that entered the church and that his picture is Perhaps in other respects a little over coloured, endorses its substantial accuracy. Lecky's England in the eighteenth century, volume one, page ninety-seven. Footnote. On the other hand, those who have made a special study of ecclesiastical history in this period present a less gloomy picture and suggest that the wholesale censure of the whole body of the parochial clergy in the early part of the eighteenth century has been far too sweeping and severe Note: the english church in the eighteenth century by j c abbey and j h overton two volumes eighteen seventy eight volume two page sixty six see also hor's the church in england from william the third to victoria eighteen eighty six volume one page two ninety nine and j w Legg, english church life from the restoration to the Tractarian movement 1914 the first and most formidable assailant of the macaulay view of the country clergy was churchill babington in his brilliant mr macaulay's character of the clergy in the latter part of the seventeenth century considered which was published in eighteen forty nine one of macaulay's and lecky's note lecky's view as already indicated is more moderate than macaulay's nevertheless though he had benefited by churchill babington's book it does not seem to me that he quite adequately appreciated churchill babington's scholarly and brilliant criticism and lecky's main authorities is dr john acard who in sixteen seventy wrote an anonymous pamphlet on the grounds and occasions of the contempt of the clergy a careful reading of acard's witty work makes it plain that He did not intend every word he said to be taken literally. His wit is of the Bernard Shaw type, only more amusing and less perverse. Nevertheless, Macaulay accepts him implicitly. In a later pamphlet, Eckhart admits that the estate of the clergy does daily considerably improve. All he wanted to do was to hasten the process by fruitful criticism, which he made exceedingly humorous in short one is left with an impression that however true a considerable part of the macaulay picture may be it is not the whole picture there is nothing to suggest that a great number if not the greater number of country clergy had been educated at oxford or cambridge in connection with the latter university that wonderful work by j and j a venn alums cantabrigienses now being issued by the cambridge university press will in itself afford a fair corrective of the macaulay description nor would one have supposed that at least eleven of the twenty-two eminent divines named by macaulay were at one period of their careers simple country parsons note beveridge burnett collies fowler patrick pearson pockott south stillingfleet tennyson and tillotson c d n b Or that men of genius, like Robert Herrick and Thomas Traherne, spent their lives and died in their country parishes, both, as it happens, in the same year, sixteen seventy four. This is three years before the death of Barrow at Cambridge, with whose name Macaulay begins his list. Certainly, in the years immediately following, the Woodford family, with its honorable clerical record, repeated through four successive generations. Samuel woodford D.D., etc was a country parson prior to promotion can be cited as a witness as can the wesley family and there are numerous others note as for instance the burton parsons of the parish of sutton montes somerset to whom see a reference hereafter page 112 that the light of the anglican church in the villages was not universally low Of the diarist himself and his diary it is necessary to say little. They will speak for themselves. But this much may be said. The keynote of the diarist's life and character was and is tranquility. Unlike Pepys, he does not move in the great world, and again, unlike Pepys, he is not minutely interested in himself. With Pepys it is difficult to say which mood is the most entrancing the mood in which he is absorbed in himself or the mood in which he throws himself completely into the scenes of which he is a mere spectator the reverend james woodford holds a middle course he is not uninterested in himself and he is clearly interested in all the external affairs which touched his quiet life though he is not a man of grand passions or brilliant qualities. His personality is such that the whole diary is steeped in a unique atmosphere. As you read his daily record, continuously kept for forty-three years, you realize that he is that very rare and beautiful bird, a typical Englishman. For the typical Englishman, in fact, is not every other man who passes in the street, but the man in whom are gathered together those various qualities which compose the national character. And this man is a rare man the reverend james woodford loved his father and his family and his home with a completely contented love he loved good food and good drink he loved sport specially coursing hares and fishing he loved a country life he loved established institutions therefore he will be found on the one hand reverently keeping the religious anniversary of the martyrdom of King Charles the first on january thirtieth of each year and on the other on the side of liberty and against King George the third in the wilkes controversy in short he believed in parliamentary government and in the revolution of sixteen eighty eight and is not a high tory he liked lords but he is no snob he liked women but not in the amorous way he has one love affair and the girl failing him he remains a bachelor to his dying day he is most friendly to his fellow-men without distinction of class and he is merciful to all animals finally in religion he loved the quiet way that mean between the two extremes which bishop saunderson explains in his beautiful preface to the book of common prayer Reading the diary of the Reverend James Woodford is like embarking on a long voyage down a very tranquil stream. There is no grand or exciting scenery, there are no rapids, nor is there any ultimate expectation of the sea, but there are green fields on either side, and trees, and a very pleasant murmuring of water. There is the harmony which comes only from controlled movement, and there is peace from the historical standpoint the diary is of the greatest possible interest as presenting a complete view of english village life in the second half of the eighteenth century it answers for that period the question which i must confess is to me the most interesting question in history how did plain people actually live their daily lives in the ancestral centuries it answers the question mainly for village and country life but there are also intimate views of university life and life at Bath, Norwich, and elsewhere. This picture of village life as it was a hundred and fifty years ago is all the more interesting because village life was then the normal life. Mr. George Trevelyan emphasizes this in one of his latest and most excellent books. In the life of our day, the characteristic unit is the town the factory or the trade union then it was the country village village life embraced the chief daily concerns of the majority of englishmen it was the principal nursery of the national character the village was not then a moribund society as in the nineteenth century nor was it as in our day a society hoping to revive by the backwash of life returning to it from the town. It contained no inspected school, imparting a town-made view of life to successive generations of young rustics, preparing for migration to other scenes. City civilization, with its newspapers and magazines, had not supplanted provincial speech and village tradition. Note british history in the nineteenth century seventeen eighty two to nineteen o one by g m Trevelyan, nineteen twenty two chapter one although we are concerned with a period separated from us by only five or six generations our great-grandfathers or our great-great-grandfathers are in the possession of the stage it is necessary constantly to remember the prodigious difference in the setting of the whole scene the following is a bird's-eye view taken at random during almost any part of the period seventeen fifty to eighteen hundred england is governed by the aristocracy and the king the rotten boroughs return members at their bidding only the country members are rather more free and even their return is largely dependent on the support of the great lords moreover in any case the country franchise is limited to forty shillings a year freeholders the prime minister is the actual nominee of the king not of the party only members of the anglican church are legally eligible for national or municipal office or for admittance to the universities a certain number of dissenters however manage to scrape in through the loophole of occasional conformity or the indemnity acts the criminal law is immensely rigorous and thefts of the value of forty shillings or over are punished by death There are 160 capital offenses. Smallpox carries off the 13th or 14th part of each generation. Note. Bernoulli's calculation. Final report of Royal Commission on Vaccinations, page 13, 1896. The slave trade is regarded as a legitimate commercial enterprise, and slavery itself as a respectable institution. The Society for the Propagation of the Gospel owns slaves in Barbados, and whitefield has slaves in georgia the slave trade was not abolished till eighteen o seven and slavery itself survived till eighteen thirty three thirty four the anti-slavery agitation began in the second half of the eighteenth century the quakers the evangelicals and the poets being the pioneers of the movement men are impressed when necessary for the navy and by a variety of means not seldom forced into the army Note: see in lord fitzmorris's life of shelburne volume one page four seventeen some interesting correspondence between chatham and shelburne on the subject of the press warrants issued in the city in seventeen seventy seventy one also for an instance of impressing a soldier h m c twelfth report appendix part three page seventy fortescue speaking of the seven years war says speaking broadly it may be asserted that during this war the ranks were filled by compulsion far more than by attraction and by compulsion so ruthless that recruits would resort to self mutilation to escape service history of the british army volume two page five eighty five france is regarded as the age-long enemy of england though the jacobites cease after the suppression of the dangerous outbreak of seventeen forty five forty six to be a serious political menace the catholics are hated or feared by the people and subject to outbursts of mob violence as in the gordon riots in seventeen eighty the theory of free trade is but just born and high protection with the consequent smuggling is practised universally if says lecky the wealth of nations had been published a century earlier it appeared in 1776 and if its principles had passed into legislation it is quite possible that the separation of england and her american colonies might have been indefinitely adjourned note lecky's england in the 18th century volume 4 page 46 edition 1896 There is no system of public health or public education in the civil service promotion depends on patronage and in the army on purchase there are of course no railroads and the roads such as they are are controlled by a network of turnpikes traveling is by horseback coach or post chaise the existence of highwaymen adds a certain excitement to long journeys note in seventeen seventy five The guard of the Norwich stage was killed in Epping Forest after he himself had shot dead three highwaymen out of the seven that had assailed him to rob the mail. Mason, History of Norfolk, page 453. This introduction to the diary of the Rev. James Woodford may now cease. Henceforth the diarist shall tell his own story in the extracts from the diary which I have made. These have been made so as to present a complete history of the principal events in his life, and I have endeavored to select passages which throw a particular light either on his own character, or the character of his family and his neighbors, or on contemporary events, or on the social life of the time. Finally, it will be well to remember the bare outline of his life. He was born on June 16, O.S., Julian Calendar. 1740 at ansford in somerset of which village his father was rector and also vicar of the much larger village of castle carry he was educated at winchester college as his father had been before him in 1758 he matriculated at oxford became a scholar of new college in seventeen fifty nine and subsequently a fellow his oxford career ends in seventeen sixty three when he is ordained the years from seventeen sixty three to seventeen seventy three comprise the period of his somerset curacies in seventeen seventy three he returns to oxford where he resides as a fellow acting also as a proctor for most of the time in seventeen seventy four he is presented to the college living of weston in norfolk and after an interval of some eighteen months spent partly at his old home and partly at oxford He takes up his residence, and there lives till his death on January 1st, 1803. End of section 0. Preferatory Note and Introduction. Read by John Greenman.